My point here is that you should study well. Consume the classics, consume the less classics, and even consume the obscure. Welcome to the first podcast ever to be repeatedly confused for a top-grossing mobile app game. That's right, it's Wisdom Warfare. I'm your host, Tyler Lay, and today's episode will tackle a difficult subject that is always on the minds of folks in innovation, entrepreneurship, and business, but also writing, fine art, tech, and many other disciplines. Originality and imitation. Creating something uniquely and authentically your own versus copying someone else's work or plagiarizing, even stealing from another. Now, of course, each of those verbs I just used has a unique meaning, especially in certain different contexts, and that is actually a major reason for the conflict and confusion around patents and copyrights and trademarks. Though before we dive in, a quick reminder, my goal in Wisdom Warfare is to dig up quotes from immensely successful individuals that seem to butt heads with each other, even contradict. Then I examine the historical context of those quotes and research their speakers a bit, in hopes of determining whose advice holds best in an applied sense. In past episodes, I put Michael Jordan up against one of the smartest humans ever, Marilyn Vossavant, as I examined the best mindset for developing your strengths and weaknesses. Then I stuck a pair of business-slash-self-development titans, Jim Rohn and B.C. Forbes, in the ring together, dissecting their different points of view on the value of reading. Today, I'm excited to be taking on a pair of legends from my own field of expertise, literature. In fact, I've managed to find an epic quote discrepancy between two writers whose works are frequently categorized as the most influential, even the best, in the history of the English language in their respective genres. And for funsies, they both at some point lived in coastal Massachusetts, where I grew up. The first from the 19th century is Herman Melville, known of course primarily for his Moby Dick, or The Whale, as well as Pierre, the short story Bartleby the Scrivener, and many more. Across the pitch from Herman is poet, essayist, and certified poser Englishman T.S. Eliot. He wrote the poems The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, The Wasteland, and of course, many more works of poetry, drama, and literary criticism. So first, Melville. He once said, It is better to fail in originality than to succeed in imitation. Eliot, who lived through the turn of the 20th century, once wrote a line that has since been repeated in various forms by many great artists and thinkers. It goes, immature poets imitate, mature poets steal. It's a quick one, so once more. Immature poets imitate, mature poets steal. Interesting. Now, before I move on, I want to address what I already briefly alluded to, which is the misattribution of that latter quote. As I said, many all-time greats have since been credited with saying starkly similar things, though the black hole of info that the internet sometimes acts as has made it very, very difficult to confirm many of those quotes. Igor Stravinsky apparently said the same about composers, while critic Lionel Trilling remarked thus of artists in general. Perhaps the most popular attribution came multiple times from Steve Jobs, who told many audiences that Picasso once said, Good artists copy, great artists steal. While this matches the extremity and slightly flippant tone characteristic of Picasso, there is no recorded evidence of him actually having said that. 
Rather, the earliest instance of such a maximum being reliably stated rather than questionably attributed is by Thomas Stearns Eliot in his collection of essays and criticism, The Sacred Wood. I digress, but I digress for good reason, as the consistent reappearance of this quote is quite significant. To illustrate why, I'm going to do something most websites and writers fail or refuse to do, which is reveal the next sentence Eliot wrote after that one. Perhaps it lacks the rhythm of the quote and discussion, or maybe it simply complicates things too much to be passed around by transient inspiration seekers on the internet, but the full quote from Eliot goes like this. Immature poets imitate, mature poets steal. Bad poets deface what they take, and good poets make it into something better, or at least something different. Once more, the full one is immature poets imitate, mature poets steal. Bad poets deface what they take, and good poets make it into something better, or at least something different. Aha! Now we have a concrete, qualitative assessment on writing strategy, which is much easier to compare to Melville's it is better to fail in originality than to succeed in imitation. Anyway, back to the importance of the quote's reappearance, as I said. What we see between Melville and Eliot is that they both seem to discourage imitation, specifically. However, there seems to be a fundamental disagreement suggested in the way they speak on the topic. Melville actually advocates for originality, whereas Eliot and others are willing to lump together all those of their artistic professions, mature, immature, good, bad, mediocre, etc., under the assumption that they have borrowed, stolen, imitated, or somehow used the ideas of others. Thus, we reach the core discrepancy between these two masters. Eliot believes that all artistic work is in some way, shape, or form taken. Imitation, theft, or otherwise, every piece has its origins in the work of another. On the contrary, Melville seems to believe in an achievable uniqueness of craft. Originality exists, and it is the artist's duty to dedicate their time and effort to finding it. Unsurprisingly, T.S. Eliot is on the more cynical end of this discussion. I imagine if he were to speak his quote, the 25 words would last a whole minute, and his affected, languishing British droll would cause in me, and perhaps in you, a deep, deep sadness. Now, Eliot lived through both world wars, and this particular quote was written just after the first. You know, Great Depression and all. Nevertheless, many clearly agree with him. Melville, a bit more optimistic in this case, comes from the American Romantic era. He passed away when Eliot was in his third year, and therefore was part of a starkly different literary and cultural moment. However, the tone of his quote is still somewhat critical and exacting. In my opinion, though, this high expectation that he proposes on originality is perfectly justified. You see, Melville's first book was a semi-autobiographical, eh, perhaps semi-sensationalized travelogue about his time in the Polynesians. After spending about a month on the island of Nuku Hiva in what is now French Polynesia in the South Pacific, Melville returned and penned Taipei, named after a local province on the island. 
While Melville has acknowledged that much of the story is embellishment or fiction, it has been corroborated that he spent a full month as a sort of hybrid guest captive, confusing yes, but less so than Britannica's description of his jailer servant. He was taken in by the cannibalistic natives of the region, ironically, when he deserted a whaling ship. This narrative earned him recognition as a man who lived among cannibals and lived to tell the tale. Thus, Typee was actually Melville's most famous work during his lifetime, not Moby Dick. And honestly, this doesn't totally surprise me. I mean, it was the mid-1800s. How many people even knew what a cannibal was at that time, let alone had seen one or gotten to know many of them? That is a riveting tale, even if it was a bit ornamented. Hey, so sorry to interrupt myself here, but I want to let you know where you can hear some more on creativity and even learn a bit about the classics. MentorBox is full of fiction lessons conducted by Jonathan Kendall, COO, but per usual, those courses are made exclusively for MentorBox members. If you want access to those and much, much more, be sure to visit MentorBox.com today and become a member. All right, back to the show. By most contemporary critical takes, Taipei was considered a supremely original work. Admittedly, the speed of critical discourse in the 1840s was much, much slower and more limited than that of the early 1900s, not to mention much slower than the rate at which criticism of all persuasions is tossed around the internet today. Nonetheless, the story of cannibals was more intriguing than his, let's say, whale of a novel that covers every single minute detail about whales, whalers, whaling, the white whale, and one big squid. Even Moby Dick, though, can be, of course, considered original in its epic scope, at times deeply didactic style and hyper-robust characterization. If nothing else, Melville undoubtedly went to great, great lengths, the depths of the earth, quite literally, to seek that originality and perfect his writing. He was not only an adventurer and thrill-seeker, but he was deeply pedantic and meticulous about his subjects as well, characteristics that really haven't been fused in such a way by any other writer. T.S. Eliot wasn't as much of a seeker of exotic life as was Melville. This was likely due to a congenital condition, a double hernia, that prevented him from engaging in much physical activity. Interestingly enough, though, as a teenager, he once encountered native villagers at a St. Louis World Fair. He was inspired by this experience to write some fiction about primitive people for his school's student magazine. Eventually, he moved to a large family estate in North Shore, Massachusetts. He enrolled at Harvard, and there he spent much of his time studying anthropology. So, though he was seemingly fascinated by the culture of indigenous people, his education was largely focused on literature. Though he began his time at Harvard as an undergraduate of philosophy, he finished with a bachelor's and master's of arts in literature. Subsequently, he went to the only place one can expect to get a genuinely authoritative English education, the oldest university in the English-speaking world, of course, Oxford University, where he was enrolled in the constituent Merton College. He was such a devout student of the classics that he felt a strong, strong tie to British culture at large. Ultimately, he renounced his American citizenship in favor of becoming a British quote-unquote subject, a whole world apart from being a typey quote-unquote guest captive, if you ask me. Though here, in my opinion, lies the key relevant difference between Melville and Eliot. Not so much their disparate experiences of class, adventure, or culture, but something that lies at the intersection of all of those things. Education. Whereas Eliot had about the most prestigious academic experience available in the Western world, Harvard to Oxford, I mean, geez, Melville was forced to conduct his own education starting basically at the age of 12, 
When several family members passed away in succession right after his father lost much of his finances to a scammer, young Herman was moved around and ultimately put to work. From there, the Moby Dick author's education did largely consist of being taught the way of the whale. Beginning in his teen years, he was embarking on fishing voyages from South Shore, Massachusetts. At almost the exact same age that Elliot was finishing up his Harvard degrees, Melville was enjoying slash lamenting the hospitality slash captivity by the Taipei natives. In both cases, drastically different from how I'm spending my early 20s, but there's a clear dichotomy between them. Melville is attending the School of Hard Knocks, to put it lightly, while Elliot is becoming a man of letters. Of course, there's no doubting Melville was well-read too, and many accounts show that he enjoyed the classics, especially Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. However, he wasn't being taught by the most erudite individuals on the planet whose lives were literally dedicated to explicating texts. Thus, it is Eliot's quote that rings most true for me. In fact, all art these days represents some modicum of imitation. Eliot's two most recognized works, Proofrock and Wasteland, allude liberally to the works of greats that came before him. From the English canon, there's Marvell, Shakespeare, and even Chaucer. From antiquity, you can find Homer, Virgil, and more. He even borrows from Christian, Hindu, and Buddhist texts. On the other hand, Melville's greatest had some sources of their own, though those most apparent and on record are nonfiction. For instance, Moby Dick narrative, for instance, from Moby Dick, narrative of the most extraordinary and distressing shipwreck of the whale ship Essex, yes, that's the real title, and also Mocha Dick, also the very real title, which was about the successful slaying of a large white whale. While these works were lesser known, I'm going to give Melville the benefit of the doubt and assume he didn't expect Moby Dick's origins to go down in obscurity, leaving his work to be regarded as utterly original or from his own experience and creative mind entirely. My key takeaway, then, is this. Originality is a spectrum. On one end, you have theft. Blatant verbatim imitation of another's work or even actual criminal theft thereof. And on the other end is originality. Though that end, the original end, doesn't have a distinct endpoint. It runs on ad infinitum, constantly coming closer to the status of pure originality, but never quite reaching it. That is to say, true, uninfluenced, unsourced, uninspired, unique creations simply don't and can't exist. For the linguist listening, I theoretically hear you. I have delved into a semantic battle that has no concrete, irrefutable conclusion. Sure, the definition of original, of course. But we're talking about practical approaches to creativity here. Writing, painting, creating, these aren't easy things. But one thing is undeniably true. Take this quote from critical theorist and leading philosopher of the Frankfurt School, Theodore Adorno. The human is indissolubly linked with imitation. A human being only becomes human at all by imitating other human beings. Think about it. How did you first learn? From birth, you acquired language by observing it in your parents and others around you. You imitated their mouth noises to indicate your feelings and thoughts and gradually grew to understand the significance of more and more of those mouth noises. Now, words written or spoken and in conjunction with the context of their speaker, their moment in time and circumstance are how you learn about life and the universe. By copying others' meaning-making actions, i.e. language, you acquired the ability to exchange meaning yourself. Okay, so what am I trying to say? 
He wrote in a language that had existed long before he was even alive. How could he be original if he was using a medium that he didn't invent? Again, of course, I'm being a tad bit facetious and hyperbolic here, but I'm trying to make a point. That point, don't box yourself in by psychologically pursuing originality. The more you stress over making something perfectly unique, the more research you'll have to do to verify that it's unique, and the more and more you'll go down the rabbit hole of stagnation. In addition to Eliot's and Melville's works, here are some other all-time greats that were by no means originals. Shakespeare. Romeo and Juliet is based on Arthur Brooks' poem, The Tragical History of Romeo and Juliet, written 35 years before Romeo and Juliet. Hamlet, based on the Danish drama Ur Hamlet, which Shakespeare's company of theater players may have actually purchased, kind of like an old-school acquisition. J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, inspirations for thousands of subsequent fantasy universes with similar character and racial archetypes, draws heavily from mythology, a bit of Beowulf, and some speculate even from a 13th century religious manual on code of conduct for women. Westworld, the HBO show that blew audiences away with its take on AI and consciousness, is based on a movie of the same name from the 70s. Even Baz Luhrmann's 2013 masterpiece, The Great Gatsby, is based on some obscure book from the 1920s with the same name. Okay, I'm joking on that one, of course. Sorry, Jonathan, I know how much you love that book. Anyway, my point here is that you should study well. Consume the classics, consume the less classics, and even consume the obscure. Read criticism, read reviews, just don't read unmoderated online forums. Educate yourself on the thematic and symbolic lineage that you're working within. Then use it. Use it liberally. In literature, it's called a source or an illusion. In music, it's called sampling. In film, there are illusions as well, of course, but there's also reboots and remakes. At the end of the day, of course, be sure you aren't breaking any laws by infringing copyright. But shed yourself of the pressure to be unequivocally original. Pursue your artistic education, creative process, and vision with the goal of making something better out of what already exists. Or at least something different. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope you enjoyed. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors as well as all of our authors teach, make sure to sign up at MentorBox.com. And if you like the MentorBox podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts, as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring. And we can only do that through your help. So please help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast.